When we look at the distribution by dollar volume of the payments received, uh, we found that 40.5% uh, were through an e-check or, or an ACH, and another 20.8% um, came through an electronic uh, credit card transaction. So that's over, what, 61% right there. Welcome to Focus, a podcast dedicated to the business of higher education. I'm your host, Heather Richmond, and we will be exploring the challenges and opportunities facing today's higher learning institutions. Today, I'm talking with Brian Dixon, Director, Student Financial Services and Educational Programs for Nakubo. He'll be walking me through the results of the recently published Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study, as well as the Policies and Procedures Study. These reports help gauge business operations in higher education today. Well, thanks for joining us today, Brian. Yo, it's my pleasure to be here, Heather. Thanks for having me. Well, I know that Nakubo recently released the Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study, as well as the Policy and Procedure Study. Would you tell us a little bit about these studies and what some of the key findings were this year? Yeah, so it, it can be a little confusing having uh, two studies with very uh, similar names, but uh, they look at the bursar function in two distinct ways. So first, the Student Financial Services Benchmarking Study uh, that's the one we do every year with data collection in the spring, and the report uh, is issued each fall. So the, the benchmarking study is designed to look at a bunch of key ratios uh, to where schools can measure themselves against other institutions, right? And this allows, um, this allows our participating institutions to track trends in, in student account receivables and collections, and you know, measure uh, effectiveness and efficiencies. So um, there's a lot of value there. Now the second study, the Student Financial Services Policies and Procedures Report, looks at, uh, as the name would, would suggest, uh, practices uh, at college and university campuses. Uh, one of the easiest ways I like to describe it is to say that it almost acts like a summary of the questions that we receive on the Nakubo Bursar list. So while it may look at, you know, what's included in the write-off policies at institutions or the services offered to students, and, and you know, that's certainly very helpful, the benchmarking study uh, uh, looks at things like, uh, say, staffing levels. Oh, yeah, that's great. Everybody wants to know that and really compare. So let's talk about those staffing levels. Are you seeing a shift in resources lately? Uh, a little bit. Um, so, for example, in the, in the 2019 benchmarking study, uh, and that's looking at fiscal year 18, we found that actually the average number of full-time equivalent, uh, the FTE student financial services permanent staff positions, uh, was 10.2. And that's actually held pretty steady over the last uh, five years. With fiscal year 14, we saw uh, 10.3. But when you look at the number of FTE students per FTE staff member, uh, that's where things can, can get interesting. Overall, it's 831 students per FTE staff member. When you look at schools with fewer than 4,000 students, there were 494 students for every staff member. Uh, the bucket of schools with 4,000 to 7,999 students, that jumps to 669 per staff member. And then at schools with 8,000 to 14,999, we saw 860 FTE students per staff member. And then at the schools with 15,000 or more students, 
it jumps to 1,365 students per FTE staff member. Uh, sorry, I just I love, I love staffing data <laughs> a lot uh, because uh, I get questions on this all the time, and it's it's really helpful, uh, as you could imagine, Heather, for uh, like directors when they need to make the case um, for increasing the the size of their staff when you're looking for more resources. Hopefully, the the, uh, the data reflects kind of what you're what you're needing. But um, uh, I want to add, though, Heather, in these in these survey instruments, the questions um, that we're talking about in both studies are actually reviewed by members of NACUBO's Student Financial Services Council. So those folks, uh, those are people that are working on campuses. They're making sure that from year to year or, uh, you know, every three years in the case of policies and procedures survey, uh, that we're asking the right questions. Um, and because we have flexibility in the instrument for the policies and procedures study, um, they, they can look at what we might want to add um, every three years. Uh, or as is often the case, um, what we want to remove uh, from the instrument, what might not be necessarily as hot of a topic anymore. Yeah, that's, I tell you, those staffing numbers are very interesting. And, and uh, really, when it got bigger, I thought, holy moly, how does anybody really uh, be able to tend to their students like they want when you have numbers like, you know, 1,365 uh, per FDE? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it gets a little crazy. It does. It does. So do you see a shift in um, staffing tenure? I mean, I know there used to be that people stayed in these positions forever, it seems, right? But we're starting to see a recent shift in the business office to, to really having less than 10 years in the position versus a 20-plus before. Yeah, so a little bit here, too. Um, the, the benchmarking study, it does look at, at staff by years of employment, and we look at that in buckets of folks that are less than a year, uh, one to five years, six to 10 years, and more than 10. Um, so for fiscal 18, 9.6% of employees had been employed for less than a year. And so there's going to be some variation in there with, with small schools. Um, those with fewer than 4,000 students reported 8.3% uh, and schools with uh, 15,000 or more students reported 10.8%. Um, the middle two buckets, for the most part, um, they held, they held pretty steady. Um, it's, the, it's the more than 10 years bucket that we've seen that has been really, um, really seeing some of the shifts. Uh, so like for in, in, in fiscal 14, on average, we, we reported that schools said they had 36.4%, uh, make sure I get the number right, 36.4% of staff uh, with more than 10 years. And that, num that number actually has, has crept up over the years, uh, 37.3 uh, and, and 15, 37.6 and 16, um, and 39.4% uh, in fiscal 17, and, and we're at 39 even here in 18. But there's, there's been growth in that particular measure for sure. Um, it, would, it, would be, uh, it would be interesting, honestly, to see an even longer outlook. I would, I would love to, the benefit in this, in this particular study is kind of asking, you know, I mean, asking the same questions year after year so that we can look at, at, at data over time. The downside uh, to that is that uh, it makes it harder to modify the questions. My, my colleagues in our research department um, on this one, because it's done annually, are a little uh, push back a little more on me when I ask for, for changes to the questions. But um, it, it may be worth uh, looking into some measure beyond, beyond the 10 years. 
Right. It's certainly a fine line of making sure that you have your true benchmarking data, but then also being able to adjust uh, as the time adjusts on that, right? Yeah, precisely, precisely. Now, I know that, um, you know, reading through both studies, they uh, really seem to point to continued movement of payments really across campus, but specifically in the business office from in-person to online. Can you tell us a little bit about those findings from the study? Sure. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's, Faster, cheaper, and safer, right? So, from the uh, the nineteen uh, the policies and procedures survey, we know that ninety four percent, so almost all of the uh, uh, respondents said that they provide electronic payment options uh, to their students. And when we look at the distribution by dollar volume of the payments received, uh, we found that forty point five percent were through an e check or, or an ACH, and another. Um, 20.8% came through an electronic uh, credit card transaction. So that's over, what, 61% right there. The distribution of dollars received via paper check has definitely been uh, declining over the years. We're seeing 25.5% um, as the most recent uh, benchmarking study. The, the paper check uh, versus ACH actually flipped uh, back in fiscal 14. That was the year where we finally saw more more uh, through ACH than, than paper check. And we've been seeing the divide kind of increase each year. As for the dollars received via credit card, both the kind of the in-person and the uh, electronic number have been holding steady with little variation um, from year to year on those. You, it, it, but, you know, we still see quite a bit. You have to remember that, you know, um, in spite of interchange fees, um, a, lot of, a lot of schools still... Uh, except uh, credit cards and a lot of folks still pay with credit cards and, and we see that especially at uh, community colleges where the, the dollar volumes are uh, the dollar amounts rather are uh, a bit lower yeah absolutely we we see that too and and especially now I'll say there's more to more and more going towards the digital side because you really have to right right yeah yeah it's just it like I said um, faster faster cheaper safer um, that's what we've been saying for for quite some time exactly. So another one interesting is um, this time you had added the tuition insurance opt-in and opt-out as part of the study. And I'll say that probably right about now, this is a pretty hot topic with the, given the current situation. So can you explain the tuition insurance data and what this indicates in terms of schools offering those students and parents uh, the ability to really ensure their higher education investment? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a... <laughs> A timely, uh, timely question. So, yeah, this is the first year we've actually asked this question. So, um, I don't have any um, trends data. Uh, we can't look at any trends, but we did find that 23% of the respondents were offering um, tuition insurance that the student could opt into. On the other hand, um, only uh, about 7% reported offering a, a program where the students would have to, to opt out. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are lots of questions about how this will play out, kind of given the COVID-19 situation we're in. And, and uh, honestly, Heather, it's going to vary um, from institution to institution and from policy to policy. Um, I'll say that there might not be as many payouts as one might initially expect, since while you think about it, a lot of campuses are closed to students, um, the institutions are still offering online learning. So that numbers may be um, a little lower than we think. Again, it's, it's going to depend on policy to policy. But I will say that in terms of this, the vast majority of those schools that said they were offering the opt-in tuition insurance, uh, kind of no surprise here, they're outsourcing that function 
uh, to an industry partner. Absolutely. I know that uh, we'll probably see a lot of uh, changes in refund policies. I know that's always been a big question in terms of where they list the refund policy, what's in that. Uh, I know for us as a vendor and a lot of the events that have been canceled, we certainly are looking at our refund policies and clauses and events a lot differently now. <laughs> right. There, yeah. So. Yeah. Everything's up in the air. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see uh, next year and, and what some of the, the questions are and how, how they're answered for sure. So. Well, this one, though, this was in the policies and procedures. So unfortunately, we won't get another glimpse at it through this particular survey instrument um, for another three years. But um, I think um, given kind of uh, how everything's, like I said, upside down, uh, there may be some sort of interim uh, uh, mini questionnaire, perhaps of sorts, just to kind of take the temperature and see where, where folks are, because uh, th- three years is a long ways away. So stay tuned. Right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be really interesting, I bet. So, um, you know, something else I found uh, also very interesting is that the income share agreements are on the rise. Can you explain what this is and why this solution is really increasing for not only schools and students, but also businesses? Right. Yeah, this is another one of the questions that we added um, uh, this go around since uh, it's also uh, a, a rather hot topic. We knew going in, uh, I'll admit, we knew going in that we would probably see uh, very small numbers, but uh, we also wanted to make sure we had a point in time, uh, a benchmark, if you will, pardon, <laughs> <bad> <laughs> joke, uh, a benchmark that we could look back on three years from now and see where the data, where, where we trend lines have, have left us. But I guess, uh, let me just income share uh, uh, agreements. They are contracts where there is an investor, um, and that could be an institution, foundation, um, business, uh, that's basically they're providing funding uh, to students to pay for school. And in return, the student is agreeing to to pay a a percentage uh, of his or her future earnings to the investor over a period of time. So it's not a loan. It's just uh, alternative, you know, funding source, but they're, right. you know, they're, because there's such a, a, a new concept, um, uh, there's just a lot of questions on it. And actually we, uh, we hear a lot that it's uh, very prevalent in like coding boot camps, uh, and, and, the, and things like that. But, um, yeah, so to our data, um, of over, of the over 400, uh, institutions, we, we asked in the policies and procedures survey, uh, we actually only found uh, 3% saying that they were utilizing income share agreements. Um, oh. That said, yeah, it's, it, we kind of expected it. Um, but another 9% said that they were uh, considering uh, using them in the future. To my earlier point, you know, it doesn't tell us a lot right now. Um, we have kind of snapped, we have a snapshot right now in time so that we can we can have probably a, a more useful conversation three years from now. So uh, you'll have to invite me back on the podcast. <laughs> well, of course, you know I will. And uh, <laughs> and you're right. You have to have somewhere to start, right? The whole point of the benchmark is you have to start somewhere. And uh, I think that'll be really interesting to see how that shifts because, uh, again, we're always looking for different solutions to help make college more affordable and, and really better manage the cost. And that's just one of many sources on that. So I think that there's uh, going to be really a lot of increase in that in the next three years for sure. Well, yeah. And, and honestly, um, a lot, I mean, again, three years is a long time. There's talk here in Washington about how to kind of regulate the space because, you know, the folks that work in these, they make it very clear that it's not alone. 
Um, so then you're like, well, if it's not alone, then um, there are no kind of, you know, you think of the protections that, you know, are involved right. in loans. And it's so it's kind of the wild, wild west right now. So, uh, right. yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see where things are three years from now. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, and just speaking of those different solutions and alternatives to, to really help students, payment plans is another option that's always been there to really help students avoid debt or, you know, getting that loan. Uh, but this seems to really be growing in popularity. So can you share some insights from these studies around, you know, how payment plans are being used to manage costs of higher education? Actually, nearly all of our respondents said they offer some form of, of payment plan. Um, it was like 98%. And that's, you know, a result of a number of factors, right? You think, um, right. think about it, schools are they're wanting to be more flexible uh, to provide access to as many students as possible. Add to that uh, kind of changing demographics of who our students are, uh, you know, the, the traditional versus non-traditional. And um, you see a lot of creative ways that schools are allowing students to, to pay for college. Uh, I mean, look, you, income share agreements, right? That's another one of those kind of creative tools. So um, a lot of schools actually are uh, outsourcing this. 44% uh, of those offering payment plans are, are outsourcing it with another um, 18 uh, or so percent utilizing kind of a combination of in-house and outsourced to manage the, the, the payment plans. Um, so then if you kind of run the math here, 38 percent are are doing it uh, in, in-house. Right. Well, there's so much flexibility you really needed with payment plans that it's, it's, it's hard to do it in-house. And, and really, you know, we're starting to see a shift of it used to be you had two solutions. You either outsource the whole thing to a service model or you invested in software and you did everything yourself. And, you know, really now there's a little bit more of that hybrid approach of how do I have software but still have some services to support me. So, uh, yeah, payment yeah. plans are really interesting. And I think we'll see that some trending numbers change over the years as well. Well, I'll say even with um, all these different alternative payment methods and, and payment plans available, you know, unpaid balances, late fee management, and, and really ultimately collections, they're always still top of mind too. So, can you tell us about the findings and how these have changed over the past several years with the desire to lower costs and better manage costs, et cetera? Yeah, uh, we definitely look at, at unpaid balances, Heather. Um, we, <laughs> we calculate a ratio based on um, it's the cumulative number of students with unpaid balances at the end of the fiscal year, uh, that number to the number of unduplicated uh, student headcount for the year. Um, I'll say again, because it's a little, it, it takes a second to kind of, uh, the cumulative number of students with unpaid balances at the end of the fiscal year to the number of unduplicated student headcount for the year. So it's, I feel it's like I'm an algebra class again, Brian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's technically, you know, it's a measure of the percentage of students with overdue accounts um, uh, as well. So it's a, it's a good measure. So for fiscal 18, we found uh, that ratio to be 34.2%. Um, now that's up from fiscal 14 when that figure was 30.8%. Again, there's, gonna, there's variation based on the type of institution we're talking about here. Research institutions for fiscal 18 reported just 24.8%, uh, um, while community colleges reported 44.5%. Uh, now, most schools, uh, most schools, 81%, they're charging some kind of late fee, um, but uh, there's variation in the type of late fee that they, they use. Just over 40% uh, use capped 
latencies uh, uh, where there's a maximum amount set. And then 25.9%, so just shy of 26%, uh, utilize a threshold. So that means you know, no late fees are, are charged if the amount owed falls below a certain amount. And then 19.2% um, use an annualized interest charge. So the students are paying um, interest on kind of any, any amount owed. And then 10% okay. uh, uh, tier their, uh, their late fees. So where students are, are charged varying based on the number of days uh, uh, late. So there's a lot of different ways, right? It's hard to yeah. say with all these different ways what an average late fee looks like, right? Um, back to algebra class here. Um, right. So we've developed a, a measure to, to level the playing field. Um, we asked, uh, what would a school charge for an undergraduate account with a $1,000 balance that was 60 days past due? We just said, given these circumstances, whether it's whether you're using cap, tier, threshold, uh, you know, if it's if it's an undergrad thousand dollar balance that's sixty days past due, what are you charging? The average response uh, was seventy five dollars and four cents, which is down uh, from the twenty sixteen survey, uh, when the same scenario kind of showed a, an average late fee of a hundred dollars and sixty five cents. Um, now the median on this year's was fifty dollars. I'll add so you can kind of see where the data is leaning. You may have some some outliners kind of pulling things in one direction um, a bit there. So, um, right. and as to your, um, your third point was on collection. The policies and procedures survey looks at um, tactics, um, tools, tactics that institutions use. Some are probably going to be pretty obvious, like holding transcripts, um, <laughs> uh, uh, blocking uh, future registration. And actually, while the percentage of schools using various tactics holds about the same for public and private institutions, uh, there are actually a few different tactics where we see some differences. So like when we're talking about uh, dropping for non-payment during the current semester, 56% of public schools reported that that was a tool in their arsenal, while only 26% of independent institutions said that. 46% of, of Private, you know, private nonprofit institutions, uh, they're willing to settle uh, a debt for a lesser amount, while only 19% of publics uh, were willing to do so. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. But like you said, it, it makes sense for sure. And uh, it, it is interesting, too, that this remains a concern, but it also seems like schools are taking really more of an educational approach to this challenge with financial responsibility agreements and financial literacy uh, especially for incoming freshmen. What are your thoughts on mm -hmm. this, and uh, what are you hearing from schools? Financial literacy education, definitely a tool used by a lot of institutions. Uh, almost 56% of the responding institutions indicated that they offer some sort of uh, program, with almost 19 uh, additional percent saying that they were planning on implementing one. And then when you look at those uh, that, that do offer these programs, um, they often partner with outside entities, such as banks. We saw 27% said they partner with a bank, 30.3% said they partner with a nonprofit, 24.2% partner with a, a state or a federal agency. And then when, when it comes to kind of who's running these programs, the 57.8%, so a majority of schools said that the financial aid office actually has the primary responsibility for the programs. Only 10% only actually said that the the bursar's office, the student accounts office had primary responsibility, though uh, over a third said that 
the bursar's office was was still involved in the program, and that's good. They've done that. Yeah, that's a little surprising. I would think the bursar would have a a stronger percentage of being involved in that since they're involved in money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to I'd like to see um, both the primary responsibility or just some sort of supporting role. I'd like to see those numbers. Um, increase. So there may be some uh, some further digging there to see what's what's going on. And then you also mentioned uh, financial responsibility uh, agreement, and those are a fantastic tool, and they're very helpful in 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 terms of financial literacy because they really provide kind of that relevant information about um, official policies that institutions have, and mm-hmm. it's also kind of you know it's contractually binding parties to those practices. Um, right. They're super helpful when it comes to collection efforts in terms uh, as well as like just how you can contact students. They're giving authorization and how, how the institution and others that, that work with the institution can contact students and, and just a whole slew of other activities. 64.5% of respondents uh, to policies and procedures surveys said that they, uh, they utilize a financial responsibility agreement, and another 17.5% were in the process of, of implementing one. It's another area where I'd like to see those numbers increase. When you think about kind of the dollars involved, why would you not want to have some sort of agreement in place? So um, this, this will be my quest over the next three years is to get these numbers to increase. Absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And when you really, I guess, when you combine the two numbers of who has it and who's in the process, it, it really is a good majority. So how, um, how do students and parents agree and how often, and are there ever any pushbacks against these agreements? Uh, yeah, that's a question we get a lot. Of the schools that use them, um, 45% have the students sign, I, I'll use air quotes here, sign them uh, one time per term. Um, and a lot of times that's through uh, the student online portal. But yeah, 45% will have students sign them one time per term. Uh, the next most popular frequency is actually one time per total enrollment at the institution, with 22% of the respondents reporting that. Third, uh, we had 16% of the schools uh, that utilize them say they, that uh, students had to sign one time per academic year. And then 10% actually said that students agree every time their enrollment changes. Yeah, that could be, <laughs> that could be a lot, but if it works for them, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm just happy that they have, have the agreements in place. As for um, any kind of pushback, honestly, you know, I, I haven't heard anything. Uh, I don't know that I would, but, you know, I mean, the students need to kind of sign these. If the school presents one to them, you, you kind of, I look at it like, you know, you want to buy a, a plane ticket. You're, you're clicking that box and indicating that you, you read the agreement. It's a business transaction um, is, is how I look at it. Yeah, you know, Brian, I agree. And, and something that uh, I always say is, I go, gosh, I didn't realize back when I went to college that I had a choice in financial responsibility. Who knew if I didn't sign something, I wasn't responsible. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, other, yeah, but there's I, other other ways, but it definitely makes it, um, uh, there's other ways to, to show that, you know, the student is, is obligated. But uh, I think a financial responsibility agreement is, is the absolute uh, clearest way to demonstrate. Absolutely, like you said, it's just like, here's your contract that you're signing um, and then we're all agreeing both parties on that. But uh, yeah, of course yeah. I think maybe, yeah, maybe it's because I was a financial aid student and so it was all sort of done. 
And that was my, that was my financial responsibility. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so speaking of aid, uh, return to Title IV, it's still a topic that pops up uh, <laughs> as a question for business officers, right? Yeah, folks love to talk about R2T4. Um, <laughs> uh, fortunately, actually, for the business office, it appears that it's not as big of a deal. Um, now, I... <laughs> I, I feel for our friends in, in financial aid, though. So uh, what am I talking about here? 86% of respondents to the most recent policies and procedures survey said that financial aid has the primary responsibility for our 2 t 4 and only 11% indicated the bursar's office does. So there's definitely, you know, some still some out there. But I, I think, too, and we, we have a great measure with with R2T4, we look at to measure kind of effort, right, in these calculations. Um, so we found that on average, the ratio of, of calculations, the ratio of R2T4 calculations to staff in 2019 was 206 to 1. So 200 transactions per staff, 206 transactions per staff member. But at schools with fewer than 4,000 students, that ratio rose to 252 to 1. So um, the the smaller schools, they're they're you know fewer you know fewer staff, fewer resources, but yeah, a lot more significantly more transactions per staff member uh, in terms of RTP four. Sure. Yeah, well, it makes sense then why it's like it's brought up. It's still obviously uh, out there and something that you have to deal with. Uh, but you said mostly more in the financial aid office, though. Yeah. So now let's talk about veteran students. I know that uh, mm-hmm. this is a group that on every campus and it really requires some very, you know, specific support and certification. So can you tell us the difference between one step and two step certification and what's the most important insight in regards to these students? One of my favorite topics. Yes. So there are two ways to certify veteran uh, student veteran enrollment. Uh, The one step and two step um, also known as single certification and dual certification. So under one step listeners probably know if, Tuition and fees are known. The school submits the, the, the actual kind of net costs for tuition and fees. At the same time, it's, it's certifying enrollment. Um, so this is, as you can imagine, taking place at the, the start of a term or, or even you know, just a little bit before. Now, if the student vet changes his or her schedule by um, adding a class or, or dropping a class, there could be an over or under payment um, there that would then the school would have to submit the modifications to to VA. And then this could also result in the school or the vet owing money to VA. On the flip side, we have dual certification. The school is submitting um, the term dates and credits first with all the charges listed as zero. So that um, allows the uh, monthly housing allowance for the student vet to start being paid out, um, so there's no gap there. And then, for the most part, after the school's ad drop period ends, and at that point, for the most part, the student veteran's schedule uh, is a little more settled, the, the, the school submits the amended enrollment certification. Um, we kind of like dual certification. Um, it's a little more work, but it, it definitely decreases um, debt situation. And right. we, we look at, yeah, we look at this, um, in, in the study, and a great data point that we found is that there is a positive relationship between the number of veterans enrolled and the use of two-step certification. So schools with more student veterans 
use uh, the two-step certification more frequently. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, just listening to that, it does seem like the dual certification probably is a little bit easier because of, you know, different ad drops and all the different changes that may happen for sure. So which office on campus is responsible for veteran benefits? We found uh, in the 2019 Policies and Procedures Survey that uh, 42.5% of the institution said that it's the registrar's office, primary uh, responsibility for VA claims. The Veterans Office, the Veterans Center, came in second with 26.1% responding. And actually, financial aid was uh, third with uh, 21.7% reporting. Wow. So kind of well, all over, but registrar kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, and it sounds very similar to a lot of functions where it takes multiple offices really working together, right? <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Well, they yeah. all, I mean, and they're all involved some at some point. But yeah, we were looking at, at primary responsibility. But yeah, they're all involved for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, that really leads me to integrated services. And I know this is mm. something that we hear about often. Uh, really being asked to do more with less and finding solutions that make us more efficient, et cetera. And it seems like that uh, what you're finding is this is happening from a staff perspective, but maybe not so much from the back office solutions. Can you expand on that? That one, how do you scratch my head a little? Um, I guess maybe the pendulum is, is swinging the other way um, on this. It could also be that schools are, are finding efficiencies elsewhere, notably technology. Um, sure. And you would you would know quite a bit about that. But it's a, a, a big thing, you know, to change to an integrated model. Perhaps that's why um, uh, some schools are, are hesitant. You know, it's no small undertaking. I think the, um, the, the two-thirds of schools reporting, you know, that their frontline staff are, are cross-trained, that makes sense. Since, since these are the folks you know, that are, that are working directly with, with students coming up with questions and they're, they're answering those questions. Uh, you want them cross-trained so that they, they can answer, you know, say 80% of the questions uh, that they're receiving. Ultimately, kind of that decision to, to have an integrated model and, and, and the degree to which um, you are integrated with, with staff, it's going to going to depend on the institution. And again, mentioned this before with several other things, you know, the institution, uh, who their students are, um, their budget, their physical space. Um, so I guess with, you know, so many factors on it, I'm not, I'm not surprised we see uh, these, these varying responses, honestly. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, you know, we hear a lot around the one-stop shop strategy, um, but that seems to be more in line with centralizing, like you said, the physical location, uh, but there's not a centralized solution to support it. So I think there's still, we're trying to cross-train, we're trying to bring people together in a physical location, but we still have four different systems that we have to know and understand, right? Yeah, and that's, and I think, too, sometimes it's vocabulary, too, with integrated models, one-stop, um, there's there's a bunch of different terms kind of that are that are out there too, and sometimes that that adds to the confusion where um, folks may be doing something but they call it something else and then it's miscategorized. So uh, there could be some mismatch there too. So it's definitely a question I want to um, take back to uh, the shop, if you will, for the next go around three years from now. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to, to hear about that. So. Well, thanks, Brian, so much for all of your insights today and sharing those key findings from the Nakubo Student Financial Services Benchmarking and the Policy and Procedure Studies. 
Well, no, thank you. And, and thanks. Uh, uh, I know TouchNet's a sponsor uh, of both studies, so we, we certainly appreciate that. But no, thank, thanks for having me on your podcast. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, and to our listeners, if you're wanting to read the full studies, they are available on the Nakuba website under the research section. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Focus. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the business of higher education. For more information, check us out at touchnet.com.